parents come to me and they say, my kids won't listen, then what do they mean? My kids won't do what I say. I'm always talking about the connection between how we feel and how we behave and how kids feel and how they behave. When somebody says, how do I get my kids to listen? Meaning, how do I get my kids to put on their shoes when I tell them to? I'm always asking myself, what's going on for that child? What's underneath the behavior? The way that you're gonna get that kid to get to put their shoes on or make it more likely that they're gonna put their shoes on is to ask yourself, why? Why don't they want to? What would you consider to be an ideal goal as being a parent? Parents want their kids to have a strong sense of who they are, how they feel, what their capabilities are, all of that. There have been times when people in my workshops, they have taken the tools that we talk about in the very beginning of our book of acknowledging feelings, and they have used them more or less by rote, like not fully feeling it. As they use them, they get more empathy for their kids. Sometimes parents feel like, I was just trying to help her learn so that she could do better the next time. But it doesn't feel that way to a child. Welcome to another episode of Success with Purpose, where we help mentor you into becoming a more successful version of yourself. We do this through giving you access to mentors you typically would never have the opportunity to connect with. We explore their journeys, their experiences, their life-changing events, their fields of expertise, and most importantly, their purpose. My name is Harry Goldberg, husband to an incredible woman, father of two amazing daughters, host, interviewer, and interrogator of this podcast, and director, and advisor, and meditation teacher of Purpose Advisory. This purpose-driven project is entirely funded by Purpose Advisory, which I am a director of. We guide clients to make great life and money decisions, and we do this through a range of different services. Life vision experiences, personality, investment strategies, cash flow systems, and through teaching meditation. If you want to learn any more about any of these, link in the comments below. Now, just before we learn from yet another exceptional guest, if you find value from these conversations, please make sure to like and subscribe below, leave a review. It really does make a difference. And of course, share with someone else who's going to find value. Now, listen in, pay attention, take some notes, enjoy. Let's begin. I struggled to believe that I hadn't heard about your work until a mutual friend of ours, Jim, uh, brought me to a group of parents who entirely adopt your and Joanna's parenting philosophy to their relationship with their kids. Uh, their results are amazing. And I've loved diving into your framework too for myself. Uh, maybe for the benefit of the listeners. So Julie is co-author with Joanna Faber of the new group book, How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen, Whining, Fighting, Meltdowns, Defiance, and Other Challenges of Childhood. As well as their best-selling book, which I've been reading, is How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Aged 2 to 7. Uh, apparently, it's been translated to 28 languages worldwide. That's correct. That is correct. And you guys collaborated on a companion app as well as another app called Parenting Hero, which is pretty cool. You you lead workshops, in-person online consults with, with parents of children aged 2 to teens by phone and video. You speak publicly to schools and businesses and... And you run parent groups across the U.S. and internationally. And I have that you received your A.B. from Princeton University and a J.D. from Yale Law School. Cool. That is all correct. <laughs> okay, so 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 we're going to have plenty of opportunity to in this chat to be able to discuss parenting approaches, how to parent better, why most parents in our society um, kind of don't do as well as what they could. Uh, but first, I'd love to focus on your journey how you've achieved this role of making a real difference in the lives of so many people. And, and I guess just before we dive into that journey, given all your achievements, 
and your impact and your passion for work. How have you come to define success in your life? When you first invited me to come speak and you said you wanted me to talk about success, I thought, well, why do you think I think of myself as being successful? And you got me thinking, what does that word even mean? And I did a little research to see how you define it. <laughs> so mm. I'm going to take your words, right? Okay. And so I, <laughs> you defined it for purposes of your podcast as people who have found, successful people are people who have found their calling and were able to experience achievement and enjoyment that deeply impacted their lives and the lives of others. And I read that definition. I hope that resonates with you because mm -hmm. those are your words. Yep. <laughs> and I thought, okay, if that's how you want to define success, then I'll sign up for that. Um, so you asked me, how do I define it? If I define it as finding my calling and experiencing achievement and enjoyment and impacting the lives of others, then yes, I, I think I, I will say I, I'm, I can use that as a definition that will work for me. <laughs> that will work for you. And if, <laughs> and if you hadn't read that before, and I, I love that that resonates. Uh, and if you hadn't read that previously and you didn't, you didn't see that on the website or on the podcast, uh, or you hadn't listened to any of the other episodes and you, and someone asked you, Julie, how, how do you know that you've lived a successful life? If you got to uh, your, your deathbed or when you're 85 years old and you're looking out on the world, how will you, how will you know that you've lived a successful life? What would your answer be? You know, I, I have a feeling I would reject the question. Okay. You know, I would say I've led, lived a meaningful life with strong connections to members of my family and other other friends and people in my life and i have i feel like i have lived my lived in my integrity of what who i want to be and how i want to be in the world and what kind of influence i want to have in the world and so maybe you could use that as a definition of success too but i wouldn't have used that word and mm. um, why not what what otherwise would you have considered success is like success in career is that kind of how you defined it or? it's more like you know when you when you first asked me and said you wanted to talk about success i thought wait a second i'm not on my deathbed like, i'm still working on this <laughs> <laughs> and, and success sounds like you have achieved and like mm -hmm. i have more i want to do i'm not done you know so i guess i have this association with the word as having accomplished what you set out to do and i have had some successes for sure hmm. but i don't feel like my life is done so i don't want to say well it's been a success like i won't know until i'm on my deathbed and even then i i, I just told you i think i would reject the question so mm -hmm. i'm not sure <laughs> i hope that's i hope that's what, uh, what i'm hearing you share is that success isn't the goal for you at least in the way that most people that you perceive most people is interpreting the term and most people interpret the word success as well, it's when you're able to achieve these particular things, you use the term accomplishments. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. So when you're able to get these particular accomplishments, then you're successful. Uh, but I think if we if we look at any of the people that most people consider successful, just even, even off the bat, without even looking at a holistic definition of success, and they start thinking about uh, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or whatever, and those types of people, or Tony Robbins and Esther Perel or Renee Brown, I'd imagine that if you asked any of them, are you done? Like, are you, are you done with all your accomplishments? I go, nah, I'm just getting started. 
and um, I'm worried I won't have enough time left to do all the things I want to do. Um, so I, I, it's an interesting topic, right? To to consider, are we like, are you ever done? Can you ever actually define yourself as successful? Or is that should that be the goal? Mm. You know, is that what I should be aiming for? Success? That's not mm. what I thought. That's what I was not what I thought about. When you mm. asked the question, I thought, I don't think about like, what do I want? I want success. I think much more specifically, I guess, than. So what, what would it mean to be a successful parent? If well, that's, that's a sense I mean, of that's your, So I have to ask you, because that's your word, not mine. I don't mm. talk to people and say, well, our, you know, he's a successful parent and she's not. I don't think that way. <laughs> if we consider the goal of parenting, actually, that's a that's an awesome question for you. What would you <laughs> what would you consider to be a primary uh, an ideal goal as being a parent? Or if you're talking with parents about their goals for parenting, like what what are their goals? What are their objectives? What do they actually want to achieve? And you're talking right. with them about what they want. How does that conversation flow? I, I often do that mm -hmm. uh, with parents and there are themes. Parents want their kids to have a strong sense of who they are, how they feel, what their capabilities are, all of that. They want their kids to have strong connections with other people, including their parents and their mm -hmm. siblings, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. their friends. And they want that for their kids when they're grown we won't, we won't try to define that word, but <laughs> <laughs> I primarily work with parents of younger children, you know, mm -hmm. two to sometimes teens, but not, I'm not usually working with parents in their twenties, although occasionally I do. Mm -hmm. um, so they're just, you know, they're thinking when they're more independent and they, you know, they want them to be resilient. They want them to be able to handle the changes that are going to happen in the world. What, have, what did I miss out? You're, you're no, no, that, that's great. No, no. So, so if you're, if they're then defining like what's a ideal outcome as a parent, are those the things which you resonate quite strongly with or is it, and those are the themes that people come to you with. Is there anything that you'd want to add to it? Those are in terms of goals, in terms of long-term goals, but I think parents also have very short-term goals. Mm -hmm. I would like to survive today. I would like to get through the day without too much conflict, without losing it. You know, I think there's that. There's also that. And and I spend a lot of time with parents on those goals, on the immediate short-term goals, because I believe that is how you achieve your long-term goals. Okay. So every small little bit today for the bigger picture. Yes. Okay. And if you're looking at the very short term, how do you then track your progress in the long term? Most people, when they start looking at the short term, like really heavily looking at the short term, they tend to lose sight of the bigger picture. Like if the goal was just to survive each day, like you could survive each day with by self-medicating with alcohol if you really wanted to. That would survive the day. You'd, you'd, you wouldn't be so worried about the kids' tantrums, that type of thing, right? It's extreme. But how do you track your actions every day towards the bigger goal of having your kids when they're more resilient and deeper connection with yourself as the parent as well as other kids and uh, other friends and family members in the future well i think we can look at those goals in the present as well mm -hmm. how did we how did we resolve conflicts how you know how what is my relationship with my kids at the end of the day what ha happened for my child and how did i respond when they hit a bump in the road so i think mm -hmm. we can also use that in in the in the present 
without it becoming debilitating, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, I remember I went a little bit extreme. So I've got a three and a half year old and a six month old at the oh. time of recording. Okay. Uh, and for for myself, it got a little bit uh, intense because I, I had an amazing experience in my personal development journey about five, six years ago when I went through an activity where I was looking for my earliest memory. And I could see how impactful my earliest memory was or whatever I was able to find as my earliest memory uh, with a lot of visualization and activities uh, and how impactful that was on my overall conditioning today. And then when I was chatting to other people who had gone through the same experience, uh, I could see how impactful it was for them as well. And then I started thinking like I had this I don't know, one month old, two month old, three month old in my arm. <laughs> and I'm like, what if this is her first memory? Like, is this going to screw up? Uh, <laughs> And it can be, it can become very daunting trying to try to take the goals for what I'm defining as being a successful parent or a high achieving parent, I guess, or like a well aligned and impactful parent helping their kids uh, with like just being able to balance the actions you got to take with how much pressure is on your shoulders. How do you handle it? Like, how do you help parents handle that pressure a lot better? The first thing I think of is, repair, you know, mm -hmm. like <laughs> go back after you don't yeah. have to be perfect. I yeah. think that the, the lesson you learned from that activity of your first memory really made that one moment seem huge in your retelling your own story about yourself. But I think there were probably a lot of other moments that impact who you are as a person that you don't remember, yes. or, you know, you remember as being as impactful. Um, because I don't want parents to think like, I have to be perfect at every moment because this could be the one thing my, my kids mm -hmm. remember, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, it's great to sit, to think and reflect on your moments when you feel like that's not really who I wanted to be. That's not really how I wanted to handle the situation. And then to realize I can go back. I can talk about what happened and I can say, boy, we had a tough time this morning, didn't we? You didn't want to put your shoes on. And I said, we had to go. And you said, no, you didn't want to leave without your shoes. And you were screaming and I was shouting. And that was, that wasn't pleasant for either one of us. Right. Mm. And I, let's do it differently next time. What should we do next time? So that doesn't happen. Or I wish this is what I had said, you know, we can go back, we can redo or we can repair. I, I like to take the pressure off parents because yes. i think that message of every moment could be their first memory and that could shape who they are as a person that's i don't even think that's true you know mm -hmm. i mean i think that it's helpful to recognize that we are shaped by our experience as children but i don't think that we're stuck with that first memory and that's who we are mm. i guess you're, you're touching on growth mindset right the the belief that, or the belief that you're able to overcome any of the or any of the problems or challenges you face, regardless of your history or your past or whatever yep. has helped you arrive here, right? That's a nice frame for it. Yes. Um, I, I, in many ways, I've struggled to resonate with a lot of other parents who are struggling with their kids. Like, I mean, I've ultimately, I've ultimately coached a lot of people who are parents and a lot of the feedback I get is that they feel like they're better parents as a result, but it's definitely not parent parenting coaching. It's, it's definitely not coaching around how to be a better parent. That topic sometimes comes up, but I'm far from an expert on it. 
The thing which I lack a little bit is the ability to empathize with the challenges that other face from a slightly more or a significantly more traumatic childhood, uh, some form of intergenerational trauma, which keeps showing up. I, I was very fortunate. I had a beautiful upbringing. I had very secure attachment when I was growing up. I had two older sisters, but I was the younger one and I got all the attention and everything was a lot of fun for me. It was, it was really cool. Um, I had very close relationship with most of my grandparents, but especially uh, one, of my one of my grandfathers, one of my grandmothers and a very long relationship with them as well, which is beautiful. And I just, I just constantly had a lot, of, a lot of love in my life when I was young. So for me, it was very easy and I need to be really mindful when I'm talking with others about uh, when they're asking me, oh, how do you do that with your kid? Or how do you just remain so calm? I, I've got to recognize a lot of it is just from the privilege of having a beautiful upbringing and not having the trauma or nowhere near as significant a trauma as where I was growing up. Uh, yeah. But what you can do is you can model and they can mm. learn from listening to you and watching you mm. and following your example. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feels like when someone starts thinking, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that person's been so successful or whatever. Like that person can take that risk with that investment because they've already got so much money. If I had that much money, I'll take that risk as well. And then, of course, I'll be able to get there. Uh, I mean, you've, you've, had a, you've had, a pretty, you had a pretty good childhood when you were young, right? You had a, from my understanding, you had a very, very safe and secure upbringing with a parent who I think your mom also learned from uh, Joanna's mom who wrote the, the first book, How to Talk So the Kids Will Listen, Listen So the Kids Will Talk, right? They studied together. They studied Heim Gennad's work and yeah. they read his books and they talked every morning, according to my mom. And they would talk about what's what hap what's happening, what's going on, what they want to try. They would and then they would experiment on Joanna and me and our siblings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And her mother took some courses with Haim Gannat. And, and of course her mother ended up writing a series of best selling books also on parenting. So yes. So you had an amazing upbringing. And then how did that influence you as a parent? Or, or maybe tell me a little bit more. What was it like being being the child of a parent who was really dedicated and really focused on making sure that their kids felt heard and seen and loved? You know, like you, hmm. I would imagine this was just normal for me. This is what home is. This is what family is. This is what my parents were like. You know, this is, I just took it for granted when I was little. Um, and then as I got older and started to hear other people talking to their kids, that's when I th thought, oh, they haven't read the book. Like, they, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I mean, that is really how I got into doing this work is once I had my own kids, I thought, wait, why are they saying this? They are creating the resistance that they're upset about. Why are they doing this? And, you know, it, I wasn't completely naive. I understood why, but, um, but it did occur to me, they don't have that voice in their head that I do. They don't, they haven't, I had read a lot of books by the time I had my kids because my mother was into it, because those were the books around in the house, because that's what we talked about. Um, I actually got to copy edit one of Adele's books before it came out, you know, so I, I you know, I thought I do until I had kids. And then I don't know if you've had this experience, but I thought, oh, 
it's actually a lot harder than it sounds like when you read the books, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and I was, yeah. I love to babysit. I was a camp counselor. It's not like I hadn't, didn't have experience with kids, but it's different when you're, when you have your own kids 24 seven. So I had yeah. empathy for other people, but I also, that's why I started doing the workshops is I thought they, they need to know some of this. This will, their lives will be easier. That's how I got started doing this work. What was, what was the difference for you? Like the, the difference for you between looking after kids and then having, raising your own kids. Well, there's the 24 sevenness of it. It's like, there's no break <laughs> at all. You are constant. I felt constantly aware that I was responsible for this other human being. And even when I went to bed that I could be interrupted at any moment. Right. <laughs> and mm. often was in the early years. Yep. So, so there was that. I think there's also something else about having ideas and dreams for your own kids, even if I wasn't totally conscious about it, that um, I remember the first time my middle one, we were at preschool, I was picking him up and there was another mom and a preschool teacher. We were all sit standing and talking to each other for a few minutes at pickup time and my son was standing next to this little girl named Andrea. And while we were talking, he went up to Andrea and just shoved her <laughs> out of the blue, <laughs> you know? And my first thought was, oh, I raised a monster. Like who does that? You know? <laughs> and I, I sort of froze. Cause I thought, what do I do? What do I say? Like the mother is right there. And my son has hurt her, you know, her, daughter is knocked over she wasn't terribly hurt but it was somewhat shocking and it seemed completely out of the blue and the other preschool teacher she she, she bent down at his level and said rashi did you want to play with andrea you could ask her if she wants to play with the blocks and he said andrea do you want to play with the blocks and she said okay and they went and played with the blocks you know <laughs> and i had that experience of I went to the, I, my mind went to, I have raised a monster. Like he goes up and attacks people for no reason. <laughs> and what will he be like when he's grown up? And then I, you know, caught myself and recognized it. And thankfully that preschool teacher was there to help out. So that's one of the reasons why it's harder when it's your own kid, because I don't do that with other kids. I don't necessarily worry about what does this mean for their future and who they will be. In the same yeah, okay. way. Yeah. So with your own kid, you found that with your own kids, I, I can relate to this. I, I've heard other parents share that they relate, that they would relate to this as well. Uh, that with your own kids, you get really worried. I mean, like people often ask childcare educators, for example, or preschool teachers, it's like, wow, are you so good with kids? And there are, there are two who have just been amazing, like two childcare educators, my daughter's childcare. So have just been amazing. And I've asked them just out of curiosity. They're like, it's pretty easy when it's not your own kid. <laughs> it's like, I can handle them. And I know that eventually, by the time it gets to four or five or six o'clock, the emotions are going to stop because the emotions are going to be the parent's problem. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then I guess there's this other element to it as well, which is if your kids feel safe to be emotional with you, then they're probably just having a whole lot of fun while they're at childcare or preschool or wherever. They're probably just having fun and doing all the activities. And then when it comes to you, it's then they finally feel safe to be able to just outpour all of their emotions. 
And you're like, crap, they don't want to be around me because they're (laughs) screaming and crying and what's going on? Yeah. Is that that common? You've seen that before? Oh, that's very common. It's also the the fact that you're getting them at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. the worst time of the day, right before dinner, they're depleted, they're hungry, you're tired, you're hungry, you know, and in your mind, if you're like most parents I've worked with, you're thinking, I've got to get dinner. I got to get them in pajamas. I got to get them to bed. Like they're going to resist it. They, all they want to do is play. Like it's going to be one push after another until we can finally get them in bed. Like that's, that's what the end of the day is like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I always think the school gets them at the best time and they leave the hardest parts for us. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just turn it all around and let kids look after them at nighttime and early in the morning and we'll just play with them all day. Right. That sounds great. Right. That sounds great. <laughs> Um, okay. So when, so you started sharing about the time when you started realizing that other parents need to learn the skills that you've, you've been learning throughout your whole life. And then you, I guess you started practicing it with your kids, even though it didn't always work, right? You'd still sometimes worry about their future and who does that? Uh, what was, what was the point where you decided to start helping other parents with their kids? It was when my oldest was at preschool. And we had a parent education committee, which was basically one person named Nancy. And Nancy organized an event where we all read a parenting book and she hired a therapist to come and lead a discussion about the book. And I read this book and I already had, you know, opinions. And so I went to this, (laughs) (laughs) I went to this uh, event and I, I don't remember doing this, but she told me afterwards, apparently I expressed myself, you know, respectfully, but you know, I had some disagreements with what was being said. And at the end, she asked the group if people wanted to do another event like this, or if they wanted to do a more than one time thing. So it wouldn't just be, we got together once, but maybe we would get together several times to discuss our book or something. And I talked to her and I volunteered to lead a workshop based on the original how to talk book that Joanna's mother wrote. And that was, I did it as an eight week workshop. So she organized that group. And I should mention that at the time I was also studying group facilitation and group development. So I was really interested in how do people communicate in groups? How do they make decisions in group? How do they work out feelings in groups? I was studying all of that. Um, And so I thought this would be a, perfect mix of my interests and it would be great for me because I was interested in parenting because I had at that point two kids Mm -hmm. the third one was born later so she organized that first group we met in the attic of the home of one of the other parents at the preschool and halfway through the group everybody said this is great and we need more than eight weeks you're gonna have to do another eight weeks so after I panicked and thought, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do for another eight weeks, like I had to come up with something, right? We, we, we worked together to come up with a model for a support group. And we did another eight weeks and another eight weeks. And then we read the Siblings Without Rivalry book because everybody had a couple kids. And we, we ended up meeting for four and a half years. Mm. And it was a great support for everybody, including me. So How was it a great support for you? Why was it a great support? Yeah. Because... During the week, when something would happen, this is one of the things that I found helpful for myself that might be helpful for you and your listeners. When something would happen that would frustrate and dreamy or or perplex me, it would help me 
maintain some sort of distance from it and think, I'm going to talk to the group about this. You know, I'm going to get some ideas from other people in the group, or I'm going to tell them about this. And that helped me in the moment. I think it helped me be a better parent in the moment. And it also helped me to have a place to go where the kids weren't around and I could reflect more on what did happen and what do, how do I want to handle that next time? Or how do I want to go back and, you know, repair this time? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was great. And I learned a lot from the other parents. There's a lot of creativity in that group. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great experience and other people heard that I was doing this and started asking me to do it for them too. And that's how I got into doing this work. So just started growing very organically, did it? Yeah. So what with other school groups or just other parenting groups and how did it, how did it then transition to what it is now? And at what, at what stage did you write the book with Joanna? At what stage I had been, we, I had been doing workshops for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. The, in the early years, I only worked with parents of little kids cause that's what I had. And I was getting great response and they were also saying, this is great. We need more stories and more examples for just little kids. So I originally called Joanna's mother and I said, I have your next book, you know, how to talk. So little kids will listen. <laughs> and she said, Oh, Julie, you write it. Call your friend, Joanna. You guys should do it. Cause at this point, Joanna was also doing workshops at this point. I was living in California. Joanna was in New York, but we were talking about our experience and I said, we should write this book, Joanna. And she said, no, <laughs> I actually, if you want me to go the full story, since we have plenty of time, the full sure. story is first, my husband said, you should write a book. And I said, it's already been written. There's nothing, I have nothing new to say. And he kept saying, but, but you have all these stories, you know, you do all this work, all these people saying they want this book. And I'm like, I don't know what we would write. And then eventually I called Adele and I said, you, you know, you should write this book because people are asking for it. So she said, call Joanna. I called Joanna. Joanna said no. Right. So I think we spent several years collecting stories, but also struggling with how do we write this? Because we didn't want it to be a lecture. We didn't want it to be boring. We wanted it to be fresh. We had some new things to say that her mother hadn't said, but there was a lot that was going to be very similar. And it took a number of attempts and drafts before we came up with the idea of bringing the reader into a workshop, a theoretical workshop with some other stock characters who would speak for the people who were in our actual workshops and raise the objections of our, uh, that come up in our actual workshops mm -hmm. and share their stories so that the reader would get sort of the experience of being in a workshop with us as much yeah. as we could do in a book. I, de I definitely got that sense. I, I felt like I was just hearing the voices of, I guess, the personas that you created of those people who are in the, the workshops. And I felt like I was getting the like ultimately the value because it didn't feel like there were too many questions that were unanswered as reading it. Oh, good. Uh, That's so, good. Yeah, you did that well. <laughs> so that was great. Okay, so so you started, you started, when did Joanna decide that, yes, okay, let's write the book? Well, I don't remember what, when it was. <laughs> I don't think either one of us really felt like we were confident we could write it until I had that idea of, of creating a workshop. And my original idea was we're going to have 20 people in the workshop and we're going to have every category of, you know, 
<laughs> every type of parent and single right. parent and this, you know, and she's like, no, we can't do that. It's too many. And she said, let's, let's whittle it down, you know? And once mm-hmm. we got that idea and saw how we were going to be able to address people's objections, because that's one of the challenges in a book like this is we can't just say, here's what you should do. Because if I tell you, here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do. People will say, well, that's ridiculous. That's not going to work. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And how do we uh, address that without constantly saying, now you might be wondering, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So a lot of people noticed that Tony was our character who was the most skeptical. And she spoke for our skeptical readers. And we have a lot of feedback from our readers because we get a lot of emails from readers Mm -hmm. who, and a lot of people said, I had a lot of questions, but then Tony asked them and then they answered (laughs) it. They're like, yes, that's what we wanted. (laughs) Yeah, nice. yeah, look, I mean, I guess there are a lot of there are a lot of Tonys out there. Um, sure, there are pl- there are plenty, right? Uh, in fact, I've like some of the main feedback I've gotten from people when I've employed either literally your type of strategies or strategies from other authors, which is which are quite similar to what you teach. And one of the main ones is you're just molly, you're just molly cuddling. That's the word which I had to learn what it was. You're molly coddling. Like you're just you're just being too easy on them. You're just you're just being so nice. You're being they so need to learn, too. right? They need to learn. <laughs> they should just listen. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that is that one of the main objections that you get? With That's what a big you're one. Teaching? Yeah, that is a big one. I would. How say. do you overcome it? Well, read the book. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> read the book. Read the book. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, but high level, like when someone's looking at your work or when they're talking to you or when they've, when they've decided to reach out to you because someone else has told them you've got to have a chat with Julie and then they find out what you're actually doing. They're like, this is just too much. Like, this is just too much work and you're just being too easy on the kids and they've got to learn somehow. Yeah. Um, how's this ever going to actually prepare them for the future? What, what's your response? How does that conversation flow? You know, uh, so a lot of people learn from their own experience. So one of the things you've noticed that we do in our book is we, we try, we say, try it on yourself. Mm. How did you respond? How would you respond if, and then I come up with a scenario that's somewhat similar to the scenario that they're saying, this child has to learn and they should learn consequences. And you know, you can't let them get away with it. And I'll give them a scenario. um, And say, how would you respond? And for some people, that's the most convincing. I mean, we do also talk about the, the science, the studies that have been done. And I think people like to know that there are studies, but I don't think that's what actually helps you change. Mm-hmm. I think what helps you change is the personal experience of what it feels like to, to be treated in certain ways, and then the stories of how you can do it another way. So that's, I think, our strength in our book is this you know, try it on yourself kinds of activities that we do. And we do it with a reader and I do them in my workshops and I do them when I work with people and the stories. And so I invite people in my workshops to share their stories in the books. We have a lot of stories. I think it helps to be able to hear what does it sound like if you do it this other way? Mm. Is that, so that's the role playing, right? That's the role playing, which you primarily use in workshops. Uh, no, that's that's a storytelling, which yeah, is different. Okay. Role playing is when I say, "Okay, Harry, tell me about a conflict you had with your kid recently. Your three and a half year old, not your baby." Y- you want me to? 
Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, toilet training. She's perfect. Like she is toilet trained. She's, she's gone for months on end of having no accidents whatsoever. Uh, probably something to do with her baby sister being born uh, around that time. She suddenly starts having accidents again or just decides to forget to go to the toilet until the last minute and then she has an accident on the way. Uh, and then there are less than resourceful uh, exchanges which can come up. It's like, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep making that mistake? Yes. Um, like you've, you've done better than this. You can do better than this, like that type of thing. Obviously from a, from a drive of wanting her to, to be able to not have accidents and believe in her own ability and take more responsibility. Right, right, right. Okay, so let's see if we could, are we doing role plays or are we doing try it on yourself? I'm not really sure here. Let's do a try it on yourself first, actually. Okay. Okay, so imagine that, okay, you're a podcaster Mm -hmm. and you're responsible for sending out the email so that your interviewee has the right link. And then when we get on, you have to press the right buttons and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And today you have screwed up. You sent the wrong link, then we finally figured it out, and then the recording button didn't work, and for some reason you started talking, and you realized you lost all this recording. And if I say to you, so I'm, I'm your partner, you know, you 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 say you you come to me, and I find out, Harry, why didn't you send her the the right link? You know that's important, right? Hmm. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to use some of the language that you use with your daughter, you sure. know, when you get frustrated. You know, you know, you have to send the right link. You know, you have to press that record button, or it's just not going to work. Hmm. What's your inner reaction? My gut reaction is, you just don't get it. I made a mistake. It's just a mistake that I've made. It's just a mistake. And how do you feel about yourself? And how do you feel about the problem? Um, I feel like the the problem is being exacerbated as if I am the problem. Ah, yes. Mm. Yes. And so how do you feel about me when I say this to you? I I feel like you're well-intentioned, but that you're 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 missing up. Like you're you're stuffing up or you're you're confusing the fact that there was a mistake with my intentions. So you think so it feels like I'm well-intentioned when I say, "How could you do this?" You know you have to press that button. You know, it screws everything up uh, when you don't do that. My, myself, myself personally, I, I can imagine my daughter probably has a different experience. But myself personally, I assume that you're, you're worried or you're, you're frustrated because it wasn't recorded and that you're letting your frustration out on me. That's how, okay. that's how you're I You're very forgiving, it. actually. I suspect if we did this in a group and I mm. asked other people, like, what, how would you respond if, you know, your partner or your boss said, said that to you? Like, how could you do this? They would feel resentful, irritated, maybe angry at me. Mm-hmm. And and that's where their focus would go rather than on how did that happen? What should I do next time? How did I forget that? I need to figure this out, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's a distraction when we criticize and attack. And that, uh, maybe I was too gentle with you. <laughs> you know, when we you're do just, that kind you're of... You're just too gentle, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what happens when we criticize and attack. And I think you're right that sometimes parents feel like I was just trying to help her learn so that she could do better the next time. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't feel that way to a child. And that's that's why we we look for other ways to, uh, to, to speak to a child when there is a problem so that they actually will focus on what did happen and what do I want to do differently next time. 
right? Mm -hmm. Or what kind of repair do I want to do? Do I need to make amends in some way? Uh, from your experience of what you've seen, have you found that, that that approach of kind of like berating the child, it's like, why do you make that mistake? Why do you do that? Like, oh, you should know better than that. And you've made a big mess for mommy and daddy to clean up and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm obviously exaggerating the way that we talk to my daughter, but I, I imagine this isn't too much of a stretch for most. Uh, and it's like, why would you keep making these mistakes? You're supposed to do better than that. All that kind of stuff, right? Like imagine that that- You know is. your pee belongs in the toilet. I don't like to see pee in the on the carpet. <laughs> and, and so, Nobody. right. And so, yeah, sure. And so from your experience, uh, has that, uh, is that just not fruitful? Isn't it just doesn't get great results? Does it, okay, well, does it exacerbate the problem? Does it keep it going for longer? Or what happens when people are using that approach? Typically. Hmm. typically it's not helpful. Occasionally a child will do what we want them to do, but that irritation will leak out in other ways. Right. I think if your daughter is feeling threatened by her new sibling and she feels like you guys aren't paying attention to me, I don't really like this. Nobody asked me if I wanted to have a sibling. <laughs> I guess that, it's very noisy now. I don't like this. You're always saying that you're busy. You have to feed the baby. You have to change the baby. Like, I'm not so happy about this. And I don't think she's consciously saying, I'm going to pee on the carpet and see how they like that, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not that intentional in that sense. But I think that if you come at her when she has those accidents and you come down hard on her, even if she does figure out a way to get to the toilet faster that baby is not as safe because she's going to look for other ways to either get back at you or get back at the baby mm. you know and she might accidentally on purpose like bump into that baby when she's walking when she's running around or you know sort of roughly grab something out of the baby's hand or scream in the baby's ear like you'll see kids do that and i don't want to suggest that anytime your kid does that for the baby it's like because you have been a terrible parent and you should really pull it together you know it, it's it's rough on kids to have mm -hmm. a new sibling no matter how you handle it and some kids have more obvious reactions from the get-go as my oldest did and some kids are really kind of cool with it until their kid the baby starts walking around and getting into their things you know it's there's mm -hmm. there's a range with this is this is cool. I didn't expect the conversation to go here, but this is fun. <laughs> um, the um, yeah, my I I was really worried about how my daughter was handling the young one being born. Right, there's like two years, nine months between them, and so I'd seen a lot of people with like eighteen months old when they have their second, and it seems just easy. The eighteen months old just doesn't care, right? Because they they don't really have their independence yet either way, uh, and so it's kind of just becomes the norm. And with this one, it was just different. And she, we did a whole bunch of things. I read a whole bunch of books. Uh, and I was still shocked that for the first few weeks, like the first maybe three or four weeks, that she was just really jealous. She'd, she wouldn't come to me for a couple. Thankfully, she was in the daddy phase. Uh, so if she was in the mummy phase and then having to pull baby off the boob or whatever, that would just be so much harder. Thankfully, in the, in the daddy phase. And then she'd... But if she wanted to come to me, she'd like should pretend to be upset by something, or maybe actually get upset by something. Obviously, me covering the baby, but pretend that it's about something else, and then come and bring like come to me and want to uh, co-regulate, but demand that the baby goes away. 
And so there was a kind of a balancing act of when do I actually put the baby down? When's it not okay to put the baby down? If the baby's sleeping, probably don't put the baby down. If the baby's awake, then can maybe put the baby down, whatever, right? Maybe if I can put the baby down while sleeping and then let her know that if the baby falls asleep, then I can cuddle you by yourself. Otherwise, it's going to have to be with me. And after a few weeks, she started kind of just ignoring that the baby was there, which was felt like a positive step because it was like, okay, she can still come and cuddle me. She'll, she knows I only have one arm to cuddle her back. She kind of gets it. It's okay. Yeah. Then, then it started getting a little bit more positive. Like if we were changing the nappy, it's like, can you go get a nappy, please? And then she'll run and get the nappy and bring it. Uh, or your baby sister's crying. Can you go in front of her and like dance and make her laugh or something? Uh, and then she'll should start doing that as well or like hold the hand and go it's okay it's okay or pat the bum and then so she was kind of in a react like responsive mode and then it took probably four months i think yeah it was probably two or three months ago uh that now that now when my daughter hears uh our the baby crying she'll get up and run to the baby and start dancing in front of her and go, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. You don't need to cry, Livy. it's okay. Here, would you like a toy? Um, but it's a lot of hard work. I can, <laughs> I can appreciate why, like, I'm, I've got a lot of flexibility with my time at work. I've, I'm self-employed. I, I have client meetings, but that's kind of, and podcast guests. And sometimes I teach group sessions on meditation and the like as well. But outside of that, um, I don't really have any specific commitments that keep me to the screen. So I can come back and work at 10 p.m. or 9 p.m. if I need to. Uh, or I can wake up a little bit earlier and do some work in the morning if I need to. And so I've, I've been able to be around, which I think is already helpful as well, right? When parents can tag team to, yeah. to come in and out with kids as opposed to always 24-7. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's hard. Like it's such a hard journey. And that's, it still feels tenuous. Like it still feels like at any moment that my three-year-old will snap. She hasn't and she has, well, she hasn't at the baby, but it still feels at any moment, it's just all going to crumble down like a, like a gently <laughs> built up house of cards. Right. Right. Um, I mean, is that, is that the, is that, is that what parenting is meant to be like for those early years? Like just feel like it can all collapse at any moment. So you just got to continue to stay <laughs> determined and committed to just continue and do the best you possibly can every day. Is, is oh, that the common dire. experience? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you say if that's, is that what parent is, parenting is meant to be? I don't think so. I think we mm. were designed to live in community. Yes. We were designed to have aunts and uncles and grandparents around. We weren't designed to be doing this. It sounds as though you are pretty much you and you have a partner mm -hmm. and the two kids. I don't think that's how we were designed as a species. I don't think that's how we evolved. Yeah. So I think that's partly why it's so hard. We're all, I don't know, all those of us who are trying to, you know, live at a distance from our parents and our siblings and raise our ki kids and you have a lot more flexibility than most people do but there's mm -hmm. the pressure of getting to work and not messing up so much that you're going to lose your job and you know mm -hmm. even if you got woken up in the middle of the night last night or there was a big fight in the morning between the kids right to do that shift i think it is challenging especially in those early years when they are so demanding physically as well as emotionally i found it got easier after the the early years, after the kids were, you know, I felt like once my youngest was five or six, I felt like, okay, I have arrived. Mm. Um, you know, had had you arrived? 
I had. I, I mean, yeah. I've, I've arrived even more because now my kids are adults. They don't live at home. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, that's a whole new stage, which, you know, it's, it's pleasant. Let me say <laughs> it's easy, <laughs> you know, you know, I love my kids and we have a great relationship now. So it's all, it's all great. I, I, we don't, I'm not trying to figure out how to protect the little one from the older one or how to resolve conflict or how to get dinner ready and at the same time meet their, you know, all the needs that they have when they're so little. So, yes. I, I love what you're, I love what you're sharing. The, just the language that you've been using uh, is, it keeps coming back. I've been reading Hold On To Your Kids by Newfeld Gordon. and Mate, Abel Mate and... Newfeld, right? Gordon Newfeld? Yeah, Gordon Newfeld. Thank you. Uh, and an amazing book. And the, the crux of what they're teaching is that you've got to focus on the relationship as opposed to the behavior. Yeah. And I've, I've been getting those vibes as reading yours. I've literally been reading both yours and... <laughs> hold on to your kids at the same time, like just oscillating between the two, whichever one's closer to me at the time. <laughs> uh, and I've really been enjoying the alignment. And unsurprisingly, in this conversation, multiple times, you've referenced the term relationship, your relationship with your kids, your like your relationship, as opposed to just getting compliance of behavior, right? Getting the kids to just do what you want them to do. That's right. That's right. Uh, how do you maintain that focus? How do I maintain it? That is, to me, that is why I have kids. If you're not going to have a positive relationship mm -hmm. with them, that is my, I guess that's my orientation. Um, but also uh, maybe part of what you're getting at is that parents come to me and they say, my kids won't listen. And what do they yes. mean? My kids won't do what I say. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always talking about the connection between how we feel and how we behave and how kids feel and how they behave. And when somebody says, how do I get my kids to listen? Meaning, how do I get my kids to put on their shoes when I tell them to? Mm -hmm. I'm always asking myself, what's going on for that child? What's underneath the behavior? And the way that you're going to get that kid to get to put their shoes on or make it more likely that they're going to put their shoes on mm -hmm. is to ask yourself, why? Why don't they want to? And there's so many reasons why a kid might not want to put their shoes on. It might be that I'm in the middle of playing. I don't want to stop. Mm -hmm. Or it could be my socks hurt. And when I put my shoes on, it hurts my feet. Mm -hmm. Or I don't want to go to school because there's this girl who wouldn't, she wasn't very nice to me. And the last yesterday she said such and such, and I don't want to have to go. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we have a test today and I'm not prepared or the car makes me feel car sick. Like, you know, what we're going to resolve it in a different way. If we can get at why a child is behaving the way they are. Mm -hmm. So that's always been my orientation. You know, to me, when people talk about behavior, I think that's, we're not just, we're not just behaviors. We're, we're thinking, feeling people. And mm -hmm. so there's a reason why we do things that we do. And it's not visible a lot of the time. And a lot of time parents don't know why until we slow down and ask ourselves. And sometimes we can ask the kids. Sometimes we can have a get sense of it. And sometimes we don't have time to think about it because we're in a big rush. We have to get the shoes on or we have to get out the door because I have an appointment, mm -hmm. you know, and then we can at least say to ourselves, well, I'll have to ask that question of myself later because I don't have time right now, mm -hmm. you know, but I like to encourage parents to think that's the question to ask when you want your kids to do something. Is why are they not doing it? Or if, what's uh, the it, underlying reason as to why they don't want to do it? Yeah. Or okay. if they're doing something I don't want them to do, why are they doing it? I can't get them to stop, you know, um, trying to think of a concrete example. Um, your, your daughter, maybe she's peeing in her pants because 
she's jealous of the baby or maybe she has a urinary infection or who knows, right? Like mm-hmm. you're going to respond differently depending on what your theory is. And you won't always know, but you have a pretty good sense that it's somehow related to this change that's happening in the family and she's feeling insecure. And once you have that, that realization, you might look for more opportunities to spend some extra cuddling time with her or do, doing mm-hmm. things she likes to do or engaging with her in ways that you know that she really feels seen and felt and, and secure with. I mean, my, my best guess as to why she's having the accidents is she's just trying to test herself out and assert her independence a little bit more. And so she's probably trying to test her body of can she just wait until the very last moment? <laughs> uh, and, and what probably makes that even worse is something I've been trying to do less of is, uh, telling her that she should go to the toilet. Like, you know, when they're, when they're holding on and they're wiggling, it's like, all right, you need to go to, to the toilet. It's like, no, 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 I'm just dancing. I'm just dancing. <laughs> or, and then they even get to the point of about to go into the car and we're about to go for a drive. We're about to go for a drive, sweetie. And we don't want to have an accident while we're in the car. Do you want to quickly go to the toilet? It's like, I'm not dancing. <laughs> I know you're not dancing. I know you might not need to right now. Do you want to go and see if there's a surprise? And sometimes I've just got a reference, like something a, uh, one of her childcare teachers have spoken about. It's like, let's see if there's a surprise. It's like, what would so-and-so say right now if we were talking about about to go in the car for a long car ride? And then try and get her to get to the conclusion her own way. But I find if she doesn't go to the conclusion her own way, if she doesn't arrive at it herself, she's just going to push back on it. Strong. So, And you can't make her go. If she doesn't no. want to go, right? You just, it's not, a, it's not a battle you want to fight because you, it's not a battle you're going to win. Well, I, and, I can make her, but I, I can also wear earplugs while I do it. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to, right? But she'd probably crazy. hold it so tight. If you like physically forced her on the toilet, she'd be sitting there going, I don't have any pee, no pee. She'd be holding it so tight. You know, kids, they do that with their poop and sometimes that creates problems. Like it's not really, mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend it at all, yeah. you know, but um, it sounds as though she, Part of your theory is that she is asserting her autonomy mm-hmm. by saying, you don't tell me what I do with my body. I decide. Mm-hmm. So I would I would try to respect that and play into that. Um, and it's really common. Three-year-olds like to feel like, okay, you know, I'm a big kid now. You don't just tell me what to do. With my daughter, when she was first potty trained, she had the, a bladder the size of a pea, you know, <laughs> if we mm-hmm. got in the car, like we might make it down the driveway and then she'd be like, I have to pee, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was always trying to avoid that problem. So I did games with her. And one of the things I told her, and I'm going to tell you this, but I've been told that it's only a story that should be told to parents. So if people are listening who are not parents, you might be grossed out by this. So I just have to give a <laughs> trigger, trigger warning. warning. Is that a right? trigger warning? You're right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, I have to pee. And my pee wants to pit kiss your pee. So then I'd say, will you come with me? And I'd pee in the toilet. And then she I said, will you, your pee kiss my pee? And she, then she would pee because mm-hmm. her pee wanted to kiss my pee. Mm-hmm. So we would do stuff like that. <laughs> I, I guess uh, that, that raises on a really cool point, which has come up multiple times in the book of playing instead of enforcing, trying to, trying to make it a game, um, yeah. a challenge. And I've, 
I've always loved that. I did that like when I was reading through the book and I, that was one of the, maybe there were like two or three things in the book, which I'm like, yeah, I already do this all the time. And the other things like, oh crap, I need to, I need to level up my game a little bit. But that was one of the ones which I, which I just have so much fun doing because you could just find new ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't work every time and you've got to keep being creative. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but, some people say, you know, oh, I'm not like Harry. I'm just not that playful. I won't use that tool. So we have a lot of ideas for those people on diff different ways to be playful for people who feel like I need some like ideas. Yeah. And there are plenty in the book. I won't, I won't get you to repeat them. I'll just tell people to read the book. Uh, the at least get to uh, chapter two. So you read the books. <laughs> <laughs> just read it. You'll get there soon. Um, one of my favorite ones though, is, uh, to just tickle, like say, you know, that you need to do this and you know, I've been asking you to do it and Either you do it or I'm going to tickle you until you do, like with a smile on your face. And then you can even coin it as like tickle torture. And then like worst case, they don't do what you're asking them to do. And then you're tickling them and they're laughing and you're laughing and it's all fun. You got to do this at the point where they're not feeling threatened or challenged or attacked, obviously, like right when they're open to playing. Uh, and yeah, just giving that was my first thought was, ooh, I, I wouldn't do that because it's, if it's at all going to feel like a threat. I mean, to me, that sounds right. like a threat. Uh, and... like, uh, not something you'd use all the time, for sure. Uh, but like one which you could use if it's like, if they're kind of like, like, you know, you know, sometimes you ask kids to do something, they go, no, obviously, then you're not going to bring up like tickle monster. Uh, but when you ask them to do it, and they're like, no. Nah not going to like with a bit of a smile on their face uh then it's like okay well, i'll just tickle you until you do do you want me to tickle you or do you want to put it on uh like do you want to put your nighty on that type of thing so so mm. i'm getting the feeling that your daughter really likes the tickle monster she likes the tickling yeah yeah she likes it so and not all she... kids do i'm guessing not all the no not yeah, all right. do and and sometimes they like it a little bit but if they feel out of control that's definitely when you want to mm -hmm. stop i mean the minute they say no 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 I mean, this, it's, this is like we get into the conversation about consent, right? Yes. But I, I want them to feel like my bot, you know, that my body is respected and I don't have to worry that you're going to come and do something to me that doesn't feel good to me. Mm -hmm. And tickling is this tricky thing because sometimes kids will laugh. I remember being tickled as a kid and laughing because there's, that's like a physiological response to being tickled, mm -hmm. but it wasn't a good laugh. It wasn't a good feeling of being tickled. Yeah. So you really need to be careful. Um, and if people are listening to this, you, I would, I would be hesitant to use that unless they know that you're totally trying just to turn it into a game. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, the equivalent would be doing something else. Like if you don't go put your clothes on, I'm going to talk, turn into a robot. And then I don't know if I'll be able to, you know, like just do something mm -hmm. very silly and surprising and just to change the mood. Yeah. So if that's what you're doing, then cool. But you really yeah. have to be careful because the laughing is not always a sign that they are enjoying it and that they want it. That's a that's a really good point. Um, there was there was once when I did it when my daughter like my daughter didn't keep laughing afterwards. Uh, like normally she'll just keep laughing for a while. Like you tickle her for a bit and then she's laughing and like she keeps laughing and she's lying there and just smiling and and you know that was fine. There was one point where she, where I, where I tickled her and then she stopped laughing straight away and she was a little bit upset. And yeah. then, like you said before, you can just repair, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh no, you didn't want me to tickle you that time. I'm so sorry. 
And what should we do next time so I know that you don't want it? Yeah. And I said, if I, and then, yeah, exactly. And I asked her, uh, next time before I play tickle game, if you don't want me to play tickle game, just say, I don't want it. And so there have been a few times where she just said, I don't want the tickle game. Okay. Okay, Well, I got to find something else. Yeah. In fact, should we put all our clothes on inside out instead of the proper way around? Maybe we should just do that instead. Um, that's a really good point though, right? The consent, the autonomy, because a lot of, a lot of these tools or a lot of pushback I've gotten from people and I've shared these types of tools is that they, they start to feel like it's all manipulation. Mm. Like it's all, it's all just influencing. What, what's your, what's your comment on that? I think of the tools for engaging cooperation, which is what we've been talking about Mm -hmm. as making it more likely that a child will choose to do what we want them to do. It's not a guarantee. You know, when you say, well, let's play tickle. And she's like, no, no tickling. And you're like, oh, okay. Like that didn't work. Let me try something else. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then you gave her a choice. Do you want to put it on regular or do you want to put them on inside out? That would be silly. Mm -hmm. Right? So you're looking for ways to engage her. I don't want to say that this will always work, that you won't need to at some point hold the limit. You know, there's, we, we have a tool that you know about called take action. We call it taking action without insult. And there are going to be times when your kid doesn't want to walk out the door and you need to leave and you've asked them if they want to be the one to open or given them choices. And you've, you know, said, should we pretend that we're going out into the forest? And they're like, no, I don't want to pretend. They're like, okay, well, we do have to leave. And I'm going to, I'm going to have to pick you up so we can get out of here, you know, for Mm -hmm. the three-year-old. So this is not, it's not manipulation. I don't think of it as manipulation. I was trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do. It's trying to figure out a way to make it appealing so that you will like doing it. So that it will work for both of us. And that's the goal. I have feelings and needs. You have feelings and needs. You know, we have this problem. What, how can we solve it that works for both of us? And I'm always looking for that win-win. And I'm always letting parents know that sometimes you're not going to find that in the time mm-hmm. you have available. <laughs> and yeah. you're going to have to take action. And they're not going to like it. And you can always come back afterwards and say, boy, you did not want to put your clothes on this morning. And we had, I felt pressured by time because of my appointment and I grabbed you and we went outside without your, you know, when you had your pajamas on and you were not happy about that. And what should we do next time when that happens? So that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. again. And what about things where you're trying to encourage them to do something for them, but they're just being a kid and not caring about time. So for example, they want to get to ballet. They love doing ballet, but you're like, well, if you want to go, we can't be late. You can't be late to your ballet class. So if you don't have your ballet clothes on within the next few minutes, then we're not going to get there in time. And then you can't go to ballet class. Is that, how, how do you help the child see that that's not a threat? That really is a natural consequence. Um, is, this, like is this a real story from your? Yeah, real story, oh, okay. real story. She, she just loves to have fun and play around. I've heard this from others as well. So I'm, I'm being careful to only raise the stories that I've, that I've heard other people share as well to make it as relevant as possible for listeners. Okay. Um, and so it's true that that you can't walk in late like you have to get there on time that's that is well, a lot of pressure like, on parents of three-year-olds if, if you're like more than five minutes late it's just a little bit um i know it, it's not it's not encouraged because then just start coming in and starting and hasn't seen what they're going to be practicing or learning and all that kind of stuff so it's okay um yeah so, so, so it's, it's a real limit like we really yeah. can't get there late yeah so 
you know, three-year-olds do not have a sense of time. No. They're very much in the moment. Like I'm having a really good time here playing with my stuff right here and ballet. Like, Oh yeah, I remember that. But like, I'm having a good time here. Right. Mm-hmm. So your question is, is it your question is, let me see if I have it right. Is it okay to say we have to leave now or we can't go? Like we have to choose whether we're going to go, go or not. Yeah. The, the giving them the choice ultimately of there's, you can keep playing if you want to, or you can not get dressed if you don't want to. But there's that, that means, means that no. you won't be able to go to ballet. Yes. I think probably the hardest part of that for parents is getting clear for themselves. How do I feel about her missing ballet? Because mm. parents will say to me, well, I signed her up. I know she likes it. Like, she's just in the moment. I don't want her to miss it. Like, do I really feel that way or not? So that's going to be, I think that's often the hardest part of this whole issue is figuring out. Is it really okay with me? Am I really going to sit here and feel totally calm about it? Or am I going to feel like, why do I even sign up for this? And, you know, I, I should have, like, I'm being a bad parent because I should have grabbed her. But on the other hand, I don't like to force her. Like, that's the mm-hmm. hard part. Because if you're clear that, hey, it's okay with me if you don't go, it just means you're not going to get to go to ballet class. And I think the way you explain it to her is going to come across as, you know, we have a choice. We can leave now and go to ballet class or... We can stay here and you could play and no ballet class today. What would you like to do? And she won't necessarily, the first time you say this to her, she won't necessarily get it. She'll say, well, I want to play now, then I'll go to ballet class. Because she doesn't quite get the idea that time is not that fungible that way. You can't sort of just stretch it out and (laughs) push off ballet class. Right? (laughs) Yes. Like, I wish we could do that, but that's not how time works. And so if she says, you know, if she says that, you, you have to say, well, that that's not an option because it's starting now. We have to go now. Mm-hmm. And she'll say, well, I'm playing. And you can say, it sounds like you've made your choice. You want to stay. And if I've already said to myself, that's actually fine with me, then what's the, what's the, it's not a threat. It's, it doesn't come across to her as a threat. If on the other hand, you're thinking she really should go. I mean, I know she's going to like it and I paid for it and it's not going to, it's only once a week. And if we don't go today, she's going to forget it. And next week she's going to miss out on the, like all that stuff that goes on in her head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we don't resolve that, then when we say it, we're going to be like, honey, if we don't leave now, we're going to have to miss the class entirely, right? They're going to pick up on it. Even if we don't say you really have to go, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't approve of this. And we're sending a mixed message when we say, well, you don't have, you know, you can stay and play, but then you're not going to get to go to ballet class. Like even the way I think of saying it. Yes. Telegraphs, like, I think you should go. And so then, and then that's when you're saying that the kid feels like it's manipulation and the parent will feel like it's manipulation as well. Yeah. You're not trying to encourage behavior or align their behavior. You're like, is it while deepening the relationship? You're just trying to get them to do the thing that you want them to do. Right. Well, you're not really offering them a choice. You're saying it's a choice, but it's not really a choice. And so, yes, she will feel like your your demeanor, your, like I can tell from your energy that you want me to go, but you're saying it's a choice and I don't want to go right now. I'm playing. So I'm going to keep playing. But then I realize that you're having this reaction over there. So that gets in the way of our relationship for sure. But I think also it's just not healthy. It's not helpful for us to say it's okay, but to act like it's not. Mm-hmm. right that's confusing for a kid yeah sure it's probably confusing for ourselves it's probably confusing <laughs> in our relationships and friendships and and yeah. client relationships and all of it right yeah um, if a friend calls you and says harry you should come we're all getting together you know we're all going to go out for you know 
or hors d'oeuvres, appetizers. We're going to, you know, whatever, yeah. right? Go to the pub. I don't know. <laughs> and and you say, well, I'm in the middle of, I'm in the middle of stuff. I, you know, I, I, I think I'm not going to go. Oh, you, you, you should come. What? Oh, come, come. And you're like, ah, no. Well, okay. If you don't want to, you know, see if I ever call you again. But it's your choice. It's your choice. You know, <laughs> you're like, oh, this is, doesn't feel so comfortable. Yeah. Okay. So how you, you've you've spoke like in the last three or four examples of parenting, you've you've kept coming back to this. Well, you've you've kept basically implying that one of the most important things that we can do is being having a sense of groundedness. Uh, emotional regulation and being aware of what we actually want. Uh, would you say that that's a that's probably the the most important tool of being a of being able to implement these resources or these strategies effectively? I think. Well, hmm. or is there something more important? Well, what I was going to say is, I think sometimes the tools help us get more grounded. So I had this interesting conversation with somebody who took a workshop once. And he was not a parent. He was an uncle. And he was just interested because he spent time with his with these kids. And he was kind of asking me sort of a similar question to what you're asking. Like, do we start with ourselves first before we can empathize with our kids? Or do we empathize with our kids? And that helps us actually get in touch with what they're feeling, how we're feeling. And I think it could go both ways. But I do know that there have been times when people in my workshops, and for me also, they have taken the tools that we talk about in the very beginning of our book of acknowledging feelings, mm -hmm. and they have used them more or less by rote, like not fully feeling it. Mm -hmm. And as they use them, they get more empathy for their kids. Yeah. What, what sprung out to me while I was reading that part right at the beginning of the book was the commonality with Imago therapy. Now the concept of Imago therapy is basically Imago meaning image and the, and it's primarily in the context of relationships, but it works with every interaction to make it more beautiful. And it starts feeling very mechanical at first. You've got to basically feedback the exact words that they've said. Like what I'm hearing you say is blah, 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 blah. Is that like, is, is that right? Am I hearing you correctly? And then they'll say yes or no or whatever it is. And I'm hearing that that makes you really, that that's make, what's, what's making you really frustrated. Is that right? Yeah. And then you just kind of keep feeding back. And they're like, well, no, that's, it's, it's not that, that I'm getting frustrated. It's just I'm really annoyed when blah, 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 blah. It's, oh, okay. So what's really, it's not frustrated. It's what's making you really annoyed is blah, 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 blah. Is yeah. that right? It's like, well, it's not exactly that. It's, I don't know. Maybe it's more than or whatever, right? And you basically just keep hearing them out, hearing them out, hearing them out. Like reflective a very, listening. A lot of people call it reflective listening. Right. Okay. I was going to call it like a very empathetic, empathetic version of active listening, but yeah, reflective, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, most people will learn it by rote first. Like yeah. it feels very mechanical, very difficult to do, yeah. but eventually you start to just adopt it and yeah. it starts working. Yeah. And sometimes, and sometimes it's, it's easier in certain situations than others. And some people have, have a, easier time of it than others. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not always when, you know, I'm always saying, I don't want people to feel like, well, it didn't happen to me like that. I've been doing it for a little while. Like, you know, sometimes this helps to get feedback sometimes, so, but, but oftentimes it does help. 
to actually get into somebody else's head is to practice that first. That made me think, are some people just better suited to have kids or better suited to be parents than others? Like some people can do the reflective easier. Some people can manage their emotions better. Some people more naturally empathetic than others. Are some people just better suited for having kids and raising them? Hmm. I, I feel like I'm not the expert on that. I, I get people, hmm. the people who work with me, people who probably read my books are people who want to learn, mm-hmm. who want to get better. And I have never actually met somebody who I thought this person should just stop. They should find somebody else for their kids. Right. <laughs> you know, I haven't actually met that. I think there are some people for whom it comes more easily, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, the the way that you respond to your kids is often, often a function of how you were spoken to as a, a child yourself. And your parents' voice comes in your head and comes out your mouth. And you're like, wow, I thought I told myself I would never threaten my kids. And then there I went and did it. Because mm-hmm. I was so frustrated and I couldn't figure out. I mean, I didn't even think about it. It just came out of my mouth. Like people will say that. Or they're um, thinking about it as it's coming out of their mouth and they just can't stop it and they feel like they're frozen, right? That's the progress, actually, to notice. Oh, I just, it's right. coming out of my mouth, right? <laughs> it's coming I out of my mouth. I still can't do anything about it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So then I mean, how I, much I of think this I is... had. I think I had it a gift from my mother mm-hmm. because she did talk to us with this in this way. She was very empathic. Um, and so I think it's easier for me than for some people. It's not to say I didn't have my struggles because I did not to say I never raised my voice or got frustrated or didn't handle things and had to go back and repair because those all these, all those things happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found one of the, one of the tools that you've shared in the book, super helpful, which is, uh, I, I'm not sure if you implied it as something that is meant to be done with kids or just with yourself. You were talking about like pressing the rewind button or like reset or starting over. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was explicitly stated in this way. Maybe maybe it was. Um, maybe you can correct me. But I've found the most effective way to, like when I stuff up, is to just tell my daughter, whoa, daddy stuffed up. Hang on one second. Can daddy say, forget everything that daddy just said. Can daddy try again? And then she'll listen and she'll want to hear what I'm saying. And then I've already got the insights from previous. It's like, it's like Groundhog Day, and then you can do it perfectly the next time, right? Yep. Uh, was that meant to be something that you're supposed to use with kids, like in the moment with kids? Yeah, yeah. yeah I okay, did. Cool. I remember walking into my daughter's room and trying to get her dressed, and she didn't want this, and she didn't want that, and I was like, "This is like, this is not going well at all." Like, <laughs> I, and I'm just getting more frustrated and trying to like force her more, and I mm-hmm. like caught myself. And I'm like, "I think we have to redo this. I'm going to leave, and I'm let's start this morning over again." And I literally mm-hmm. left, closed the door, knocked on the get door again. She's like, come in. <laughs> you know, wondering like, what is mom doing? Because it was the first time I'd ever done that. And I'm like, good morning. It's so nice to see you. you know? And then mm-hmm. I just handled it completely different. And it was a reset for me. And it was a reset for our relationship, for sure. So, you know, you, yes, I'm sure you could do it without announcing it to your kid. And I don't know if your three-year-old knows what rewind means. Like, I don't know what no, kids know. No, she doesn't. <laughs> right? Um, I, I've <laughs> sometimes had to use the term off and on. Like, uh-huh. let's turn it off and turn it back on. Okay, it's working now. Great. Oh, that's good. That's good. But, that's, we're always looking for the modern equivalent of rewind. <laughs> Play it again. <laughs> it's like replay? <laughs> Maybe. No, yeah. You don't want to replay the exact way, right? Um, yeah, you made a really good point before. You were talking about this idea of, like you received this amazing gift from your mom 
And I don't know the numbers or the data. I'm sure there are some people who have researched it, but I would imagine that the vast majority of people did not get the beautiful gift of parenting that you got from your mom uh, or that Joanna got from her mom, right? Uh, and I, it makes it a much more uphill battle. We were talking about this right in the beginning, right? We were talking about how I think your reflection was, well, you can just model it for others. You can use your gift to try and model it for others and share with others how it can be done. Um, is it, have you found that people kind of need to handle their generational trauma that they've inherited from their parents and kind of just like handle that themselves on the side? Or have you found that people have been able to heal a lot of their generational trauma through parenting, like through being a parent and trying out just being more empathetic and just trying to do it differently. What I have you found being the key benefit? It, goes, it can go both ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think sometimes people find it very powerful to read the book or do, or to work with me and to hear this other way and to imagine it and to do it with their own kids. And it feels mm -hmm. very cathartic. And, and for some other people, that's just not enough. So I, you know, I, I don't claim that I have, you know, in my one book, all the tools that anybody of any parent, you know, could will help them. It, it, it's pretty close. It's... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I like to think it's pretty helpful for everybody, even yeah. if it's even if other things might also help. Okay. But thank there, you. That's a that's a huge compliment. So I I, I take that. <laughs> I I mean it. Like I, I see so much alignment with what I'm reading there, and then even obviously I, I mentioned hold on to your kids, but like there's this. There's so much alignment with a lot of the stuff. Like even even looking at relationship books, yeah. Uh, like Sue Sue Johnson's "Hold Me Tight," uh, or I don't know if that you start, one. oh, uh, I'll send it to you afterwards. Doctor Sue Johnson, amazing, amazing stuff. You'll you'll resonate quite well with it. And obviously, what we were talking about before with Gabo Mate, and then if we're referring to a lot of books on just emotional regulation, or uh, whether they're teaching meditation, or whether they're teaching uh, a practice of mindfulness or where they're teaching just being able to take action and doing the things right even even something that you wouldn't equate with parenting like james clear atomic habits it's like oh no hang on a second just do a little bit better each day and keep working on it and the one percent improvements are going to be drastic improvements rather than like ultimately what you're talking about is you're implementing a new way of doing things and the book or the reason why I praised the book, the reason why I wanted you on this podcast and persisted uh, is because you're like the content in your book is actually really practical. It's really useful. It's really helpful. People can use it as a guide and try something out and see if it's going to work for them or not. Obviously it only works if people apply it and actually <laughs> practice it and do the work, right? Cause it's not easy. Uh, actually, maybe I'll give, maybe I'll give you an example of how it's uh, a couple of examples of how it's worked really well. Um, there's there's a concept you're talking about of explaining um so explaining instead of directing basically or instead of like giving them instructions so it like if they're if it's like one of the tools i can't remember the exact part in the book I could, I could is find it good it. I give information to... maybe yeah give information oh. correct sorry okay. in my mind i thought that was explaining yeah. Not... so in my mind it's very different actually okay yeah. can you can you help me understand how it's so different for you well the the reason I had that reaction was because a lot of people will say she was so upset that she couldn't go to her friend's house. Right. And I, so I was explaining to her that her friend is sick and we'll have to reschedule mm -hmm. and it's okay. Cause we can find something else to do. Like that's explaining. Right. And okay. to a kid that feels like 
you don't care how I feel. Yeah. I, I I don't care about that. I I really upset that I can't go to my play date. That that's a fair distinction. I'm referring to giving information. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. Um. So the giving information uh, example was I went and brought her at, to where we're moving and packing up home, and we need to get a whole bunch of boxes from somewhere. Uh, and I was driving uh, my my two daughters to to go and get it. And my three year olds like, when we get there, I'm gonna come out with you, and we're gonna go and get the boxes together. I said, well, we could do that. But then your baby sister is going to be all alone in the car. Um, and then she'll be all alone. It's like, well, she can come too. So yeah, but if she comes too, I can't carry her and carry the boxes. And then if you see me carrying her and the boxes, you'll probably want me to carry you too. And then she goes, oh, but you could use the baby Bjorn. Oh, it's actually Ergo baby, but she keeps calling it baby Bjorn. I don't know why. Uh, and I guess kids have brand loyalty. Um, and, and she's like, but we could, we could bring the baby Bjorn. And I said, yeah, but then I've got her here and then I'm carrying all these boxes. I might squash her. And she's like, I could wear the baby Bjorn. I said, well, you could, but what would be the problem with that? It's too big for me and I can't carry baby sister on my own. I said, so what? So what should we do? I'll stay in the car with baby sister while you go and get the boxes. And then I'll make sure that if she cries, that she's going to be okay. And she knows that I'm here. Oh, that's really sweet. So just like I was calling that explaining, but I guess it's describing or giving details, giving information. It was really helpful. So thank you already in that book that that solved the drama or healed something. I love that story. And I would call that problem solving. Okay. Right. I'm going to put a little frame on it. Like I see why you Please. call it giving information, but you acknowledge that when we get to the store, I want to get boxes and you want to come with me. Hmm. The pro- There's going to be a problem if we do that. What's the problem going to be? Where's your sister going to be? Oh, she's going to be alone in the car. Is that going to be okay? Oh, no. Wait, look, we need So we need a different solution. And you might even want to st- start talking to her about ideas and solutions Mm -hmm. so that when she gets a little bit older you can say well hmm, that's a problem like you you know you want to go in and i only have two arms i don't know how i'm going to carry the boxes and your sister like we need a solution right Mm -hmm. and she's already had this experience so you can say remember when we we were trying to figure out how to solve that problem and then you you had the idea i love that you let her have the idea you had the idea of staying in the car with your sister so if she cried you could help her and i would get the boxes right that was a solution that worked for everybody and then we ended up with the boxes Hmm. that's very cool that's our offering to parents for resolving conflict of all sorts and it's really nice that you did it in a in the context of she wasn't particularly upset or frustrated about some situation it was just like we're going to go buy, get boxes and i want to come in with you you know mm-hmm. she's excited about something and you're like oh we are going to go get boxes wait what would happen if we do that right you just walked her down the <laughs> down mm-hmm. the, the path well i mean i guess if uh my main concern the main reason i employed a strategy as opposed to just telling her what's going to happen uh, is if i didn't then there would have been there would have been frustration. There would have been some, maybe some form of meltdown if it got that extreme. But at the very least, she wouldn't have felt heard or seen. Well, uh, and and if she was really frustrated and you left her in the car with her sister, 
I'm not sure, so sure that's a safe situation for her sister, right? No. Or even if they were both strapped in, it would still, like, at the very least, be, like, screaming and crying or upset. And even yeah. if it's just being upset and not making a loud noise or whatever, like, that's still infectious, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, she was she was very cute in the end. I, I left. I was back in, like, two or three minutes or whatever it was. And then she was like, Daddy, baby sister started started to started to cry a little bit, so I gave her another toy, and now she's happy. And, <laughs> and the baby sister smiled, and it was very cute. So um, then you can use that skill of describing the effect on others. You've noticed that she was upset, and you figured out what would make her feel better. Mm. Wow. And now she looks pretty happy. You, right? Rather than saying, wow, what a great big sister you are, which is tempting, mm -hmm. or how wonderful and I like that, which is about you, you want to keep mm. it keep it on her and what she did and how she helped her sister and how happy she was able to make her sister. Mm. Uh, yeah, that was my approach. Not not that explicit. I should have been more explicit in that regard. Or well, next time I'll be more explicit in that regard. I uh, offer that to you because anytime you. you can catch her feeling good about how she treated her sister, that's going to be helpful for their relationship too. Mm. My, my approach was to still address the initial like the initial desire that she had and help her realize that seeing a different, like doing the, doing a viable alternative was even better. So, and so, Oh, wow. And so you, you really looked after her. Did you have fun while I was gone? And you were worried before about being left in the car and not being able to come with me for boxes. Cause you thought boxes would be fun. Was it fun being able to help baby sister? And then she's like, yeah, that was uh -huh. fun. Uh -huh. uh, but no, the, that's, that's really cool. Asking her what she really liked was beautiful. There was a, um, one of my earlier guests, um, someone who I, I consider him to be one of the best role models of being a dad or as a father. Uh, his name's Michael Ray. He became a, a solo dad, I think, at the age of 51. I might get that number wrong. Basically, his partner left the, the, decided that she no longer wanted to be in the picture. So there he was, 51, with a two-year-old daughter. And his daughter's now 12, I think. 11 or 12 years old uh, and just like an amazing, resilient, focused, um, very, very secure child. And one of like, he basically, he basically reduced the number of hours that he had to work. He needed to be as present as possible. He, he ended up in um, some form of not activism, but whatever it is. Um, when he wasn't allowed backstage for his daughter's ballet, concert because it could only be it could it was only women like only mothers that were allowed it's like i teach kids how to do swimming lessons i've got a working with children's uh license like you you trust me with other people's kids you're not going to trust me with my own it's like yeah but like the aunt or the grandmother can come it's like yeah but i'm the parent and she wants a parent back there everyone all the other kids have the parents and they ended up making the exemption for them for the next year like they changed the rules for next year and uh, okay. very very cool guy very very amazing story and one of the things that he keeps saying is that his parenting should at its best be questionable at its best it needs to be questionable what does that uh, mean as in he wants his, he always tells his daughter that he, he keeps telling his daughter he doesn't have all the answers oh his, that she could question him yeah that she can question uh. him that others can question his parenting style too, but ultimately that it's for his daughter to be able to question him and to be able to challenge whether or not that his parenting in the right way. And one of his favorite things to do when his daughter's about to do something dangerous or about to try something that he wouldn't want to do is like, 
okay, what's, what's the plan? I'm not sure I'd do that. You can do it if you want. What's the plan? It's like, oh, you want to climb up the tree and then jump from that branch across to that branch about three meters off the ground. I mean, if you want to, you can. What's the plan and what are the risks? What, what can we, how can we mitigate those risks? Uh-huh. That type of approach, uh-huh. which I think is just really cool because it just gives the, gives the child agency, right? Sure. I mean, it also depends on if she's going to try to jump from the oh. roof to the street, you know, like you're not going to say what's the plan, right? I mean, you might well, ask her the plan and say, well, actually that plan doesn't work for me. Yeah, of course. You'll, you'll step in and stop <laughs> if necessary, but right. I guess just challenging the kid on what the plan is. Yeah. Uh, I've done that a couple of times now. And I, and then I ask, oh, so you want to let go of the swing when it's really high up in the air and then what's going to happen? Well, then I'll come down to the ground and I'll, I'll land. I said, oh, have you ever, have, you, have there been any other times where you've, jumped from a really high place and landed on the ground like yeah was that fun or was that really painful it's like it was really <laughs> painful it was really so it's like so what so what's the plan like, well i'm gonna jump i'm gonna let go when i'm on the swing and you're gonna stand there and catch me it's like, oh, okay so now we can start and look at this great and what if daddy doesn't catch you what if daddy's not looking you're gonna look at me the whole time I'm like, okay great let's let's go let's give it a shot uh, as opposed to it's like, no, you're not. You're not going to let go. That's too dangerous for you. And I'm really worried and I'm really scared. And I get, even if we employ all the other resources like that are in the book and we go, well, I get really scared when children look like they're about to hurt themselves. Uh, <laughs> like it still isn't going to work that well as just going, yeah. well, what's the plan and how do you actually want to do this? And what are, the, what are the risks that you're looking at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Walking them uh, down the, the path so they get to, think it through and you poke at the places where they haven't quite figured it out or anticipated <laughs> what might happen. Yeah. I imagine that that then improves the relationship long-term with the kid as well, like with your child too, because then they feel like they can come to you with their problems because they're not yeah. just being told, nope, it's wrong. Yes, it's right. No, it's wrong. Yes, that's right. And then they always got to depend on you or then, or not depend on you at all whatsoever. Yep. Yeah. I'd imagine that improves the long-term relationship, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it helps them develop their reasoning and their ability to be autonomous safely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And that shows them that you trust her in this case, you trust her to think things through and right. As you say that she's not just dependent on you to tell her, this is okay. No, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately we, that's what we want for her is for her to be able to, when she's grown to be able to think, should I do this or not? And not to feel like, well, I'll have to call my dad and ask him what I should do. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you're going to wish she had done that, but you know, really what you want her is for her to be able to use all her resources. You can be one, but to use all her resources to figure out, should I, or shouldn't I? And then if they make the wrong choice, you can help them you can equip them with more resources or more knowledge or more life experience, right? Yes. Like, okay, so what did we learn from that? What we learned is jumping from the roof, that painful broken leg takes a long time to recover. <laughs> mm-hmm. the yeah. Jumping in the bushes is not always the safest part because bushes can be very hard and thorny and sore <laughs> exactly. as well. And it can break the bushes and that, <laughs> that doesn't bring smiles to many people's faces. Um, I mean, can you, on this, on this topic or along these lines of empowering our kids, 
can can you give some examples of when you've seen your kids do exceptionally well as adults or young adults or as they're growing up uh, that has shown that the techniques that you've that you teach in the book and that you've used with your kids actually work and work really well? You're thinking of an example that you heard from. A I am thinking of an example that I asked you <laughs> okay. earlier, but I asked that to give you the opportunity to share yes. any other examples of as well, rather than just. Well, I'm one. glad you you coached me because it's sometimes you know hard to think like oh let me think of like a specific example. But yes, the, so when my oldest was in college and he was rushing a fraternity and they had various activities that they had to do, but towards the end of this process they had something called Hell Night, and he decided that he didn't want to continue, but he wanted to leave on good terms with everybody. So mm-hmm. he told them, Oh, I call, he called me and he said, it's going to be hell night. And I said, you know, Asher, as your mother, it gives me pause to hear that you're going to do anything that's called hell night. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story. And he said to me, don't worry, mom. I know what my limits are. And I'm confident that if I'm not comfortable with it, I won't do it. And he ended up, Sorry that he wasn't comfortable with it. And he told the guys that he wasn't going to join. And he told them, you know, it's not about, it's not, nothing personal to each one of them. He liked them as individuals, but he didn't like the, the culture that they were creating for this fraternity. And he ended up not joining. Is that the story you heard? Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I didn't hear the story. So that's why I was excited to hear oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, which, is, which is great. I mean, can you, can you pinpoint some of the techniques or some of some of the approaches that you had in his life up until he was I guess, oh 18. make the connection between how this yeah happened. make make the connection between what happened there and the way that you raised him i the connection that i made <laughs> you know you mm-hmm. have to interview him to see what he would say the connection i made was he has a strong sense of who he is what he's comfortable with how he feels about things mm-hmm. and he has enough confidence coming from that place to say, this isn't for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, teens, and he was in his late teens at the time, they're sort of biologically designed to be tuned into what their peers are doing and what the world around them is doing and, and to be influenced by that. And it's not always inappropriate, but in this case, what the culture was demanding of him did not align with who he is and what he felt comfortable with. And he felt totally comfortable saying, This isn't for me. Mm. And I know how to talk to them in a way that will be least threatening to them. I'm not going to say, this sucks. This is terrible. You guys are, you know, who would want to be in your group? It wasn't that. It's that this isn't isn't what I want. It's totally cool for you. I don't have any judgment about it for you. It's not for me. And so he maintained good relationships with the the specific, not all of them, but he, he maintained friendships with some of them. And he felt good about, having experimented, have not being influenced by by those around him were saying, fraternities, you, you shouldn't even be doing that, right? He went, checked it out, and then he learned for himself, this isn't for me, and, mm-hmm. and, and very graciously withdrew. Do you have similar successes with your other kids? I feel like so, that's who they are. I mean, I feel like, yes, I don't know if I have permission to tell the stories, but I, yes, you know, I feel like they have all in their own way, figured out what who they want to be and what they want to do. Right now, my, my daughter, she's the youngest of the three of them. She is a tap dancer. She always wanted to do really a really advanced tap program. 
And when she got into high school, she kind of maxed out the local TAP program here. And she went to university and joined the TAP program there. And then she hurt her back and she wasn't able to tap dance for a year, practically. But there's this really advanced international uh, professional tap dance program in Barcelona. And she was determined to do that program. And that's where she is now. Right. You know, (laughs) and she's doing that. And she's working part time for the Climate Center, which is a nonprofit that's working on climate related issues because she cares a lot about the future of the world and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, wow, she's she knew what she wanted and she worked really hard to make this happen and she's living her dream. So I feel great for her. I do. You know, I just feel like, wow, isn't that isn't that something that she has the drive, she has the self-discipline, she has the self-knowledge, and she made it happen. All by herself. Well, I guess it's not all by herself, right? She had the right well, foundations laid. When I say all by herself, I didn't help her get into the program. I didn't help her get this mm-hmm. job. I mean, she she did that part, but certainly with other people helped her do the you know get make that happen. And certainly, I you know we have a relationship, and she I raised her. So yes, yeah, it's course. not unrelated. But yes, there are, there aren't that many. But I, I mean, I guess more and more presently there are increasing number of diagnoses of kids with issues parenting parents having their kids with problems and whether that's ADD ADHD uh, autism being on some spectrum somewhere uh, all these different challenges and labels and everything which is being applied to kids and a lot of those are very helpful to be able to know and then still need to be able to be managed as well have you done much work with parents who have struggled with their kids being different to other kids or being even more of a challenge than other kids? I have worked with parents with a variety of diagnoses. Mm -hmm. At one point in my work, I paired up with a colleague who is an autism specialist and we offered workshops specifically to parents of kids on the autism spectrum. I have a child who's on the autism spectrum. Um, So even when I'm not leading workshops, specifically for that population. I welcome those parents into my workshops and I share some of the stories from my own life. And what I say and what we say in the book, because we have a chapter in our book for parents of differently wired kids, we call it, Mm -hmm. is that all kids want to be understood. All kids want to have a say in what they do and how they do it. All kids need to learn how to resolve conflict there's a lot of we can there's a lot of similarities in what kids want and what they need and the tools that we are teaching in my opinion apply whether your kid has ADD ADHD ASD learning differences you know developmental issues of course how you use them is going to vary how you empathize with a child who is on the autism spectrum or who has sensory issues is going to be influenced by the fact that they have those sensory issues, for example. So you need to know what that is and how the child experiences the world. But the fundamental concept, the fundamental principle that it helps to put into words how a child is feeling to acknowledge what's going on for them is the same. Yes. Right back to probably the theme of this whole conversation, the idea of 
empathizing and focusing on the relationship rather than the behavior and the behavior which needs to be fixed right and that's especially important for kids who behave in unexpected ways right Mm. and that's sometimes what we would talk about uh for a child on the autism spectrum who who does things that are unexpected and for parents to learn what's what's behind that and if you want to change their behavior it's not just a matter of telling them how to move their bodies and where to look. It's to get at why they're doing what they're doing and what kind of information to use your other example would be helpful mm. for them. Yeah, this, this is beautiful. I, I mean, when you, when you shared that, I mean, I, I suspect that all kids do things that parents don't expect yeah, uh, at, exactly. at different times, right? Just, I guess it's more extreme on, on, some, on some ends of the bell curve uh, yes. for various people. Yeah. Look, this is beautiful. What I, what I normally do at this stage is I, I kind of feedback the majority of what I've heard you share throughout this conversation. And then you can correct me on anything. You can add something else or you can just say, no, nope, that's all perfect. I'm, I'm happy with it all. Or you can leave a final message for, for anyone who's listening. Uh, maybe advice that you wish that you could give to every parent, right? And so we, we started exploring your definition of success. And as we were doing that, you were saying like, look, if, it, if it's finding my calling, experiencing achievement, enjoyment and impact and impact on other people, then I guess that's great. But you've normally pursued meaning rather than success, right? A meaningful life rather than a successful life. So strong connections with family and friends and your integrity and being who you actually want to be. And you know, your kids have a strong sense of who they are, which we had an amazing example of right towards the end, so to the front, right to the end. And... And basically just to be able to have independence and resilience and handle the challenges which are coming up in the world. And that's what all the parents who seek your help are ultimately trying to trying to pursue. And at the same time, they're also just trying to survive each day and just maybe at the end of it, try and work out, well, what happened for my child today that can help them? And what happened that might need to be repaired or improved on? You don't have to get everything perfect or get everything right every single time which I think far too many parents have that expectation on themselves. And I guess just asking the question, are you being the parent that you want to be? And when we looked at your childhood, you had a beautiful gift from your mom who was studying parenting with author of probably one of the most read parenting books in the world, uh, how to talk. So kids will listen, listen, so kids will talk. And your mom's basically studied every day, practiced, and then reiterated how to be better parents and continue to improve. And then you saw other people talking to the kids and seeing how differently they handle kids as well. One of the main reasons why an experienced child educator or teacher or someone who's great with kids uh, is that parenting is just 24 seven, you never get a break. You can jump in with someone else's kids for a few minutes or a few hours and it's fine. Like, you know, you take care of them and then they're back to the parent and it's great. And that's the village thing that we're talking about, right? But with your own kids, it's you're more likely to jump to things like, oh, who does that? Why would someone do that? What does this mean for my kid and for their future? And how is this even possible? And why would this even happen, right? And you finally decided that it was time to teach other uh, the skills to other parents because your oldest was at preschool and the preschool coordinator or the school coordinator basically organized an event and there was a therapist and you expressed your respectful disagreements in a respectful <laughs> way. And then you offered to facilitate a group on talking so the kids will actually listen to you. 
based on the book of how to talk to kids will listen, listen to the kids will talk. And then did eight weeks and another eight weeks and another eight weeks and another eight weeks. And I think you, from memory, I think you mentioned it ended up being like four, four and a half years. Four and a half and, years, yep. Right. And you don't need to do parenting alone. It takes a village, both the support for the parent as well as the fact that just like you need more help ultimately than what most of our nuclear or sub-nuclear atomic families are becoming, right? <laughs> right. And so we kept talking about this idea of relationship versus behavior. Instead of just looking at the behavior, look at what's underneath the behavior. What's the why of the behavior showing up? And what's the why in the relationship that is ultimately contributing towards it? And we were talking about whether, like, were you always this grounded, right? Or did you have to look to other mentors? And you've already shared that you've had a great mentor. Um, and the, literally the person who wrote the book on this stuff, right? Um, and you just got to ask yourself, ultimately, is it really okay with me? If I'm, if I'm trying to assert something and it's not going to happen, or if I'm trying to give a choice, is it really an okay choice? Or am I going to feel terrible about it afterwards? And when we're talking about being more empathetic on, or trying to change, like trying to empathize more with our kids, we're talking about this idea of self-regulation to then approach versus the, uh, versus using the tools in an approach like with rote learning and I just got the tools, I'm going to do it mechanically. And then maybe it's actually going to help us self-regulate. Now, uh, as a, as a side note on that, I had, uh, we've had, we run, we teach meditation. I teach with one of my business partners who was a monk for 10 years and he teaches in, like, in, like we, what we teach is not being intended to just make you a better parent. It's intended to help you self-regulate better. But sure. every single person who's attended who has kids has been like, it's made me a better parent. My spouse has told me I'm a better parent. I'm just more calm. And I'm just not letting all of my fears keep showing up all the freaking time while I'm engaging with my kids. And it's beautiful, right? And, and so that's when we started talking about, right? Like all of our fears, all of our trauma, which we had when we were young. How do you stop the generational trauma? Well, if you, if you don't have it, be a model. And if you do have it, look for models or, and tools and resources of people you're able to kind of gauge from right and are some people better suited like with their personality and whatever you said look some people have it more easily than others and some people have it more difficult but what you found in your experience is regardless of someone's personality or approach or childhood that if they want to learn if they've got the growth mindset around being a great parent that or the best parent that they can be that they'll or better parent maybe uh that they can do it it just comes down to it just comes down to their willingness to actually do it as well. And we spoke about some of the really cool tools in the book, which I encourage people to actually read, but uh, like playing instead of telling people what to do, making it a game. I said explaining, but I think you, you, you talked about it as describing, right? Or Descri giving, giving information, information. Yeah. giving information. And then we were talking about trying to solve problems as well. And then you gave two great examples. One of your older son in college and fraternity and coming back to you and going, don't worry, mom, I know my limits. The other one about your daughter, just being able to continue to pursue what she really loves based on what she loves to do uh, and that she's got the confidence in herself as a result of the childhood or one of the main reasons being the childhood that she had as she was growing up. That's kind of that's kind of the high level of what I got from you uh, <laughs> in this conversation. There's a hell of a lot of value. Is there anything from that which you'd like to correct emphasize, take away, or add to? There's, there's two things I want to add. One is 
so you mentioned my oldest, you mentioned my daughter. So I just want to mention my middle one. (laughs) (laughs) Lest he listens and thinks, why didn't she talk about me? Because he's also amazing and very, very driven and motivated and knows what he's interested in and can pursue it. He's self-taught computer coder, software engineer type, and has done some amazing things, all based on what he became interested in and learned on his own and he knows how he learns best which is not in typical environments uh, educational environments so he learns on his own um Mm -hmm. but he's done amazing and you know so i just want to i want to give him a shout out too (laughs) (laughs) another lesson from julie king is be fair and equitable with your kids whenever possible so they all feel included and loved and cared for got it (laughs) and the other The other big issue that we're not going to talk about, but I just want to mention as one of the things that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about these days is conflict and kids and how we help kids when they're fighting or arguing or bickering. And I I designed a new workshop just on that topic that I started doing last year. And one of the things that I felt was missing for parents was a place to go to practice, Mm -hmm. practice these tools. Because the workshops, we I teach them, we practice, we do some practice exercises, but um, to, to figure out what the word should be in the moment, that's the biggest challenge. And for anybody who's new to this, you'll read it and you'll think, well, I like these ideas. And then you'll hit a, a, a situation where you think, but I wasn't sure what to say in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. So I took those two issues and I created a workshop where we do a lot of that in the workshop. We do a lot of practicing. People bring their own conflicts and then we role play and i have if you harry if you came and you had a conflict between your two girls let's say we're a couple of years from now you know you you'd come and you'd say they were fighting over this toy and she threw it at her and she screamed you know and i said mm-hmm. that's it go to your rooms or whatever you said you know in the moment and i need another strategy so we will practice we will test out on each other various like what if we said this what if we said that how would it make you feel put yourself in your daughter's shoes and I think that ha- ha- handling conflict with our kids and between our kids, it's like the next level up of challenge for parents. Mm-hmm. And for most people who have one child at a time, you, f- you practice first on one and then you get this other one and then you start to work on that issue. So you can look forward to that in your future. Um, but so I just wanted to raise that as another issue that- Beautiful. You know, I, I... Yeah, that, that's another really big thing. There, there was a great example in that parenting group, that, which is how I found out about you in the first place. Uh, one of the participants, I, I don't have his permission to share it, so I'll, uh, so I'll just uh, de-identify, right? Um, and one of the people, had, they've, got, they've got a few kids, and he had three kids, and they're all older, like five, six, seven-ish. And they were all getting very rowdy, and it was time for bed, and they just weren't listening. And so he took a, he applied obviously what is learned um, from your workshop, but then he also took something from Never Split the Difference, which is a pretty cool book. And he just decided to go in for the, like the radio voice. Uh, and he'd turn off one light and he'd go, we're getting ready to go to bed now. And we're all getting very sleepy and we're all getting ready to bed and we're getting calmer. And the kids just ignored it, right? As if they didn't even hear it. He turned off another light and we're getting... We're slowly getting ready to just calm down 
and just find it easier and we're gonna we're gonna be okay and we're all gonna relax and we're gonna go to sleep and switched off another light <laughs> and the kids started like paying attention you know a little bit less rowdy or a little bit less conflict as well and we're gonna read a book and one of you is gonna bring a book to another one of you and we're all gonna sit and read together he turned off another light and the kids started listening and then the youngest went and ran off and got a book and brought it to the older sister. It's like, you can read the book. And then they all sat on the, on the bed and then they were, they'll come as opposed <laughs> to, as opposed to how he would have handled in the past or how most parents would handle it. It's like, everybody right now, I'm switching off the lights, go to bed right this very instant. You can't keep doing this. This is stupid. It's way past your bedtime. Um, it's just really cool being able to apply a new approach, like an empathetic approach to parenting as opposed to just these are the rules, enforce it and follow it. Uh, well, that's a great that, story to end with. <laughs> I think I know uh, who told it to. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you can guess. Uh, no, I, I just love the work that yourself and Joanna are doing uh, and what you brought to the world. It's really beautiful. And I'm grateful for your time to be able to share this with the world and to be able to share this with others. It's really beautiful that I'm sure that at least like at least a few people are going to listen to this and be different parents as a result. I suspect many more than just a few, uh, but I'm really looking forward to, I'll, I'll share the feedback that I get from them after it's released in the future as well. That'll be yes. Quite people who are listening, please send your stories because that helps keep me going. That, that really excites me. I love hearing from people who've taken these principles and put them into action. Oh, thank you, Harry, for sharing my work with your followers and helping spread the word. Thank you for sharing it. So I hope you received a whole lot of value from engaging in that conversation. What were the key takeaways for you? What can you schedule in your life right now to make sure that the time you just invested into listening to this exceptional conversation with this amazing mentor and this amazing individual is time that wasn't misused, but was time that you've allocated properly to enhancing your life and improving it? Whatever it is, schedule it now, practice it now, be the successful person you're meant to be. Live with purpose.